The following episode of Tales of Northern Michigan's Past discusses gruesome murder and gun violence. Listener's discretion is advised. This episode is dedicated to both the Robeson family members and the families of those that lost their lives in the recent tragedy on May 24, 2022 at Robe Elementary School in Texas. May they rest in peace. Welcome to Tales of Northern Michigan's Past. I'm your host, Christopher Struble. One of many factors that makes Northern Michigan an idyllic place to live is the relative lack of crime, especially that of a violent nature. Many of us often opt to leave our doors unlocked when we leave our homes, as opposed to possibly having a window or door broken in the unlikely event of a random break-in. The rare exceptions to this statement, although few in number, are the murders that have been committed in Emmett County in particular, which have quite often been very sensationalistic not just in terms of the macabre factor that tends to coincide with the traumatic taking of a human life, but also for the groundbreaking legal precedent some unfortunate incidents have set and defined for national and even international law. Throughout this season of Tales of Northern Michigan's Past, we are going to discuss a few of these cases and the resulting aftermath they have left in their wake. As a child, I could not imagine a more relaxed and secure feeling than when I was with my family in our cottage on a small lake in the Gaylord area. Interactions with the bears that drank from the shoreline around the lake were much more of a concern than any of the threats and fears we left in the city when heading north. In contrast, on the afternoon of June 25, 1968, that common sense of safety and serenity was forever shattered when a gunman shot and killed Richard and Shirley Robeson of Detroit, Michigan, along with their four children, while they played cards in their small summer log cabin on the tranquil shores of Lake Michigan. The events that day sent a shockwave throughout the region and forever changed the way of life, especially for the residents of Goodhart, Michigan, a small community just north of Harbor Springs. The murders began with five gunshots aimed at Richard Robeson fired through a rear window of the cabin from a 22 caliber semi-automatic rifle. The murderer then entered the cottage through an unlocked door and killed the remaining five members as they scrambled in defense and horror. Once finished with the grisly attack, the heat was turned all the way up The windows and curtains were closed, and a piece of cardboard was placed in the window to conceal the damage. Russell Figg, a gardener who was the last to see Mr. Robeson alive, and his assistant saw what they thought to be bullet holes in the window the day after the murders. But they were not sure because of the cardboard that had been placed there after the killings that had partially concealed the damage. That, along with their shared experiences, the bad things of this nature do not usually happen in such a placid locale so they did not notify authorities until after the ultimate and sad and gruesome discovery on July 22nd. After multiple reports of a terrible stench coming up the wooded bluff to the nearby Blisswood Resort, a concerned caretaker entered into the cabin and discovered the body of Shirley Robeson. Shocked, he immediately fled and called the authorities. The Allen Graham family from Lathrop Village, who were friends of the Robesons, visited the cottage on Saturday, July 20th just two days prior to the horrific discovery. They did not notice any order. They did, however, find a note that had been placed on the door stating that the family would be gone until the 10th of July, which they considered an explanation for the fact that both of the Robeson's cars were still in the driveway. Apparently, Mr. Robeson had told several people he would be taking a business trip by private plane during that fateful summer. That note found on the door along with Mr. Robeson's discussions with several locals of an approaching trip, contributed to the fact that it was 27 days before the discovery of the crime. 
Upon entry, investigators found the six bodies of the victims in an advanced state of decomposition. All had been shot in the head with a 25 caliber pistol. Mr. Robeson had been shot two additional times, one bullet having come from the 22 caliber rifle that had been fired from outside of the cabin, and another fired from the 25 caliber pistol. He and his seven-year-old daughter had also been bludgeoned by a hammer to the head. Shirley Robeson's body, the first to be discovered, was found lying on her stomach. Most of her body, including her face, was covered by a plaid blanket. Her undergarments had been removed, and the body was staged in an intentional attempt to disguise the attack as being that of a sexual nature. Richard Jr., 19, the oldest son, was found lying in his bedroom with his legs protruding out into the hall. He had several gunshot wounds to the face from the 25 caliber pistol. Gary, 16, was found lying on his back along the east wall of the northwest bedroom. He had two gunshot wounds to the head. The second autopsy performed during the ongoing investigation revealed a 22 caliber slug in his chest, which indicated that he had been also shot when the shooter had first fired from outside the cabin at Mr. Robeson. Randall, 12 years old, was found lying on top of his father's body. A lavender-colored rug was draped from his shoulders down to his lower back. The youngest son's cause of death is listed as a gunshot wound to the head, yet no bullet was recovered during the autopsy, further fueling the still-continuing theories and perspectives surrounding the tragedy. Susan, seven, the youngest child, was found lying on her back in the hallway next to her father. She had also been shot in the face, and a 25 caliber slug was recovered from her clothing. The claw hammer that had been used to desecrate her and her father's bodies was found nearby. Investigators later confirmed that the first shots had been fired through the cottage window with a rifle striking both Richard Robertson and his son Gary. They, along with the others, were then chased down and shot to death, one by one, methodically. Neighbors later recalled hearing shots and loud voices of the day of the murders. They thought it had been kids shooting the seagulls on the shore of the lake. Richard Smith, an Emmett County prosecutor and later a judge, told me he had to burn his clothes after returning home from the initial investigation of the crime scene because of the terrible odor. The autopsies of the victims had to be conducted at the Emmett County Fairgrounds because, quote, of the smell and advanced stages of decomposition that had made it impractical to perform the examinations at the local morgue. Bloody footprints found on the floor led investigators to conclude that one person and one person alone had committed the brutal murders. And very early into the investigation, the police believed that person to be Joseph R. Scalero III, who was an employee of Mr. Robeson's that had been in charge of two of his advertising and publishing companies. It was later found out that Scalero had embezzled at least $60,000 from the companies during his tenure with Robeson. That would be equivalent to hundreds of thousands of dollars in today's money. Scalero also had been writing larger than normal checks in the weeks prior to the murders, and there had been heated discussions on the phone between Scalero and Robeson right up until the day of the murders. It is a commonly held belief that Robeson had known about the missing funds and had confronted Scalero, and that is what caused Scalero to commit the horrific murders. Scalero also had been named the beneficiary on a Keeman's insurance policy Robeson had taken out a policy that would have paid Scalero $200,000 in the event of Robeson's passing, more than enough money to cover up his embezzling and eliminate any motive on his part for the crime. But unbeknownst to Scalero, Robeson had not gone for the required physical examination 
so the policy was void. The evidence against Sclero, although mostly circumstantial, continued to pile up beyond a rational rate. But there were several contributing factors, especially in the beginning, that kept the investigation from being conclusive beyond a reasonable doubt. Scalero initially was by all accounts very set on helping with the investigation, but it soon became apparent to investigators he was a bit too helpful, and that he was actually trying to direct the inquiries and obstruct the investigation, and his alibi was far from airtight. However, without knowing the exact time of the murders, inquiries into the discrepancies of his account of where he was during a very pertinent 12-hour window that would have either allowed him enough time to commit the crime or made it impossible were inconclusive. Once the forensic evaluation of the shell casings found at the crime scene were completed, it was determined the shots fired from outside the cabin came from a rare AR-7 22 caliber semi-automatic rifle, and the gunshots to each of the victims' heads shot from inside the cabin came from a Beretta 25 caliber jet fire semi-automatic pistol. Also noted at this time was the fact that the shell casings were from a very rare Finnish ammunition manufacturer by the name of Seiko Incorporated. Soon it was revealed that both of the guns used in the murders were the exact type of weapons that Scalero was known to have owned, which seemed to be well beyond coincidental. But the problem was the ballistics did not match. Later in the investigation, a pair of boots found in Scalero's home were found to match the bloody footprints inside of the Robeson's cabin, but once again, almost matched, which only further confused investigators. But then it was revealed that Scalero often compulsively purchased two of most of his items, including two of each of the makes and models of the guns used in the murders. This fact would eventually lead to his downfall, but not so fast. Emmett County's prosecutor at the time, Don Nagel, made it clear he was not willing to continue to spend the necessary funds to bring the case to trial, especially without being able to locate the murder weapons, which Galero had claimed to have given away, including the actual pistol he used to shoot each family member in the head, which he grotesquely claimed to have given to Robeson himself prior to the murders. No murder weapons, no fingerprints, and a county board that supported the prosecutor's desire to drop the case. But then a tip came in, and that tip declared that Joseph Sclero would often target practice at a shooting range owned by his father-in-law. It was at this private shooting range that investigators were able to find spent shell casings, known to have been shot by Sclero, that perfectly matched those of the AR-7 22 caliber rifle used in the Robeson murders. These casings were also the rare Finnish brand Seiko ammo. The final blow came when documents showed one of only a handful of purchases in Michigan of Seiko ammunition was made by Joseph Scalero III. Finally, on January 3, 1973, nearly four and a half years after the murders, Oakland County's chief prosecutor, L. Brooks Patterson, declared that since the plot to kill Richard Robeson and family had been hatched in his county, the guns used in the murders were purchased in his county, and the incriminating matching shell casings had also been found in Oakland County, he was going to have his assistant criminal prosecutor, Ronald Kovalt, pursue the case. During the investigation, Sclero had ultimately submitted to three polygraph tests, two that he failed, and the third test was officially inconclusive. On March 8, 1973, 
After learning that an arrest warrant had been issued against him, Joseph Sclero attempted to phone Ed Goss, the detective that had conducted the three polygraph tests during the investigation. Detective Goss, an expert polygraph examiner, was absolutely convinced Sclero was the murderer and had told him several times that he needed to repent his sins and confess. Unfortunately, Mr. Goss was not available, and Sclero was only able to leave a very brief, benign message that day with the detective's son. Did he indeed call to confess his crimes to Detective Goss? That, unfortunately, will never be known. As Scalero then typed a letter declaring himself a liar, a cheat, a phony, along with a list of people he had defrauded over the years. He left this typed letter along with a handwritten letter to his mother, the last person that still believed in his innocence, in which he wrote, quote, I had nothing to do with the Robesons. I'm a liar, but not a murderer. I'm sick and scared. God and everyone else, please forgive me. And he then took his own life with almost the exact same style of pistol that he had used in the Goodhart murders. Although the case is considered solved by all the authorities involved in the investigation, under Michigan law, with the main suspect dead, the case remains open and inactive in perpetuity. Thank you for joining us at Tales of Northern Michigan's Past. Please join us in the next episode as we're joined by Christy Dickinson as we discuss her book about the Robeson murders. Thank you.